Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Helen Betty Osborne, an indigenous Cree woman, was born in Norway House, Manitoba, in Canada, on July 16th, 1952. She died on 3rd Street in The Paz, Manitoba, on November 13th, 1971, at the age of 19. Now, I don't normally tell you the end result right off the bat. So, why now? Well, because, creep, the entire town knew exactly who had committed the senseless murder. Helen Betty Osborne was a young, beautiful, and intelligent young woman. She had the ambition of going to college and becoming a teacher. Helen wanted to better her community. She aimed to make a difference, and this passion led young Helen to leave home to further her education. Helen spent two years at Guy Hill Residential School, just outside the racially mixed town of European Canadians, Métis, and Cree people of the Paz. And before we continue in our tale, I want to put you in the shoes of a young indigenous person arriving for the first time at one of these residential schools upon leaving your home and arriving at Guy Hill Residential School. When you arrive, you are led into a door and promptly subjected to a coal oil delousing. Then your clothes would be taken from you. You had no choice, and these clothes, a piece of your identity, well, they'd be trashed or burned. Clothes for newly admitted girls included dresses or skirts, plus thick navy bloomers. Bloomers are a type of undergarment. In between the dress and the bloomers was an oddly designed slip, featuring a pocket in the middle. So if you had a cold and had to reach for a tissue, which would be stored in the pocket of the slip, well, these young women were forced to lift up their skirts. This involuntary exhibitionism was specifically designed to embarrass and belittle these girls. At Guy Hill Residential School, instead of using your name, they look you up and down and assign you a number for identification purposes. You've never been to a church, but all your teachers are Catholic or Christian. You are taught a provincial curriculum, which would not feature any indigenous history or content. You've grown up speaking a mix of English in your own language learnt in your own language, but now you are punished for speaking anything other than English. The objective of these schools were to educate the savages, essentially. It was a systemically racist system of intentional generational destruction of these indigenous cultures. In other words, the assimilation and dissolution of, in their words, uncivilized culture and lifestyles. As if this wasn't enough, as if this wasn't already uncomfortable. Along with all of those things I just listed off for you, these residential schools were rife with child molestation, starvation, abuse, and often murder. Two years had passed for Helen Osborne at the Guy Hill Residential School, and she was now ready and allowed to move on 
And in the fall of 1971, Osborne entered a government program for her to board with the Bensons. The Bensons, a white and religious family, thus furthering the assimilation of Helen into the Canadian identity, which conveniently left out countless Indigenous identities. And Helen started attending Margaret Barber Collegiate in the Paz, Manitoba. The journey Helen was on, the difficulties and the atrocities of the residential school system, living with the Benson family, having to leave home and travel far to receive an education. This journey was in hopes that one day she'd return to the reservation she'd grown up on, and she'd be able to teach other children so they wouldn't have to leave the reservation to receive an education. She struggled in school, but this passion and aspiration to help her community, that's what drove her forward. Through the lonely nights and the belittlement, the sideways looks, the punishments of the residential schools, and the difficulties that come along with loneliness. Helen Osborne was making the most of it, though. She'd settled into the community nicely, making friends and connections. On November 13, 1971, Helen Osborne was spending time with those new friends she'd made, enjoying her afternoon at the Northern Light Cafe, relaxing and chatting, perhaps talking about her dreams of having and raising a family of her own one day, and the hopes of meeting a nice man to settle down with, a man to share and build that family. After a while, Helen and her friends were done with the cafe. The conversation had run its course, but Helen wasn't ready to call it for the evening and decided to go downtown with her friends for a few drinks. The night went by as Helen enjoyed herself, but around midnight, her friends returned home, leaving Helen all by herself. Between midnight and 2.30 a.m., no one really knows what happened, where Helen was, who she met, really anything for that matter. But at 2.30 a.m., Helen Osborne was walking home. The road Helen was on, 3rd Avenue, was dimly lit. The streets were quiet and harshly cold as Helen felt the sting of the Manitoba winter settle into her bones. As she walked along 3rd Avenue, a 67 white Chrysler pulled up alongside her. The following day, Kenny Gerba, a 14-year-old on Clearwater Lake roughly 32 kilometers northeast of the Paz, got tired of fishing. Having no luck in losing patience, Kenny went off looking for rabbit tracks. It wouldn't be long, though, till 14-year-old Kenny had discovered Helen Osborne's body. She'd been raped, beaten, and stabbed over 50 times with a screwdriver. Her cheekbones and skull were broken, her lungs were damaged, and her kidney was torn. Now, at first, police were suspicious of Helen's boyfriend, Cornelius Bitey. On the night of her murder, Helen and Cornelius had had a fight in the lobby at the Cambrian Hotel in the Paz. Perhaps there was a motive in there. What was the fight about? Perhaps there was infidelity. Perhaps Cornelius whipped up in a rage took his anger out on Helen. There were any number of possibilities for the promising lead early in the investigation. But after investigators brought the young man in and administered a lie detector test, he was successfully cleared. Now, imagine this. This little town, the Paz in the sparsely populated province of Manitoba. The Paz is a very small and close-knit community, and in 1971, only 6,000 people lived there. It was remote. There were only so many roads in and out of town, and there wasn't a myriad of public transport that could ferry strangers in and out of the Paz. This wasn't a big city. But despite all of that, 
Despite the fact that a murder in a small town should have been a big deal, it should have rallied the community together to try and resolve the case and restore their sense of security and safety. Despite all that, the case went cold. Well, the case officially went cold. But investigators eventually did implicate four young Caucasian men from the Paz in the murder of Helen Osborne. And just for you, Creep, I want to say their names clearly, for reasons you'll come to find out. Dwayne Archie Johnston, James Robert Paul Hutton, Lee Scott Colgan, Norman Bernard Manger. So officially, the case went cold. In fact, the whole town knew who killed Helen. Her death was the crowning jewel of the local gossip for years. Everyone knew, but they didn't say a thing. They wouldn't point their fingers and see justice done for the terrible murder of Helen Osborne, an indigenous Cree woman. Why would they? She wasn't one of them, was she? Around 1987, 16 years after her murder, there was suddenly renewed interest in the quote-unquote unsolved murder when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police decided they'd like to take a crack at fishing out any new leads. Constable Rob Urbanowski of the RCMP was placed in charge of the case and without much to go on from the first initial investigation, took to the public for new leads. Rob placed details of the case in the local newspapers and asked for witnesses, or anyone who knew about the crime. It had been 16 years since the murder of Helen, 16 years with no movement on the case, 16 years of gossip in the town. Police weren't expecting too much, how could they? Memories are fragile. If someone had seen something on that November night, with the dim street lighting and the cold wind burning their face as they turtled into their jacket, how likely would it be that someone would come forward with credible information? And they were partially right. It wasn't until the story was then in turn picked up by the larger Winnipeg Free Press newspaper that the leads started flooding the RCMP tip lines. As the men were named and identified in the course of the following years, it turns out that many townsfolk in the past were well aware who had committed the murder. They'd all spoken about it many times. Helen Osborne's death was a conspiracy of silence, a conspiracy of apathy, a conspiracy of racial prejudice and tribalism. Helen Osborne's mother, Justine Osborne, said after the arrests, I don't want to talk about it, but I am glad there will finally be a trial. I am upset, but I am also relieved. And as if it wasn't already bad enough. As if it seemed like it couldn't get worse, it did. Creeps, the combined sentences were even worse. The justice system which is supposed to provide closure and pass down justice appropriate to the crimes enacted, it failed. During that disgraceful trial, the events of November 13, 1971 were finally brought to light. Helen Osborne was walking home from the bar. The arctic air swirled and whipped at Helen's clothes, and like any Canadian winter night, her breath hung leaving a trail of milky air behind her. Like a memory, fading fast as she continued walking away. Third Avenue was dimly lit, and the bright headlights of the white 1967 Chrysler blinded her in the night as it pulled near her. The men in the vehicle looked at Helen laughing and snickering, and propositioned her for sex. But Helen refused them. Dwayne, Lee, James, and Norman got out of the car, quickly wrestling Helen into the vehicle. 
Helen was then driven to a secluded location, and I can only imagine the fear and confusion she must have felt. This young woman who less than an hour ago had been enjoying her night, dancing and laughing over drinks, meeting new people, and letting the stresses of the world wash away in those moments, well, she was now being taken away into the night, away from the paths, away from the home she was boarding at, and away from her safety. The four young Caucasian men drove a distance that must have felt like an eternity away from Helen's security of the familiar streets of the Paz to a secluded cabin. The four men parked the vehicle and grabbed Helen, dragging her out, but she wasn't ready to give up yet. Helen screamed and screamed, feeling the insides of her throat ripping and chafing against the air being expelled fiercely from her, hoping someone would hear her and be able to help. And in fact, Someone did hear her, the cabin neighbors, who then proceeded to do absolutely nothing. The men got back into the car and continued to drive further away from civilization, further away from anyone who might hear Helen's screams. Finally, the four young men and Helen, in the pitch black of the November night, reached an old remote pump house, where the men proceeded to stab her to death with a screwdriver. This story, this disgusting and terrible story, had been told before, though. In 1977, Lee Colgan, one of the four men who had murdered Helen Osborne, had actually confessed to the murder to Sheriff Gerald Wilson over a few beers. Sheriff Gerald Wilson didn't report the confession in 1977, though. It wasn't until 1986 when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police asked for the help of the public in solving the case that Sheriff Gerald Wilson came forward and reported this confession made by Lee Colgan in 1977. Dwayne Johnson admitted he was there but insisted to the court he hadn't participated with the other men. But that was just a cowardly lie, as forensic evidence was able to prove he had joined in with the three other men. So now let me tell you their names once more. But this time, I'm also going to tell you the sentences passed down to them by the Crown Prosecution. James Hutton was acquitted. Dwayne Archie Johnston was convicted. Lee Scott Colgan got an immunity deal for testifying against James Hutton and Dwayne Johnston. Lee also downplayed the participation of James Hutton and his role and implied to the court that only Dwayne Johnston was involved in the murder and Norman Bernard Manger was never charged. In total for the four men involved in the murder, only one man was charged in the crime, and that one man, Dwayne Johnston, only received 10 years in prison for the brutal and savage murder before being released on parole. These four Caucasian men weren't the only ones on trial, though. The trial and murder of Helen Osborne was a trial that fully examined and exposed the culture of the Paz itself. The silence, the prejudice, the tribalism, and the Jim Crow-esque rules and laws within the town itself. An employee of the RCMP admitted to hearing Lee Colgan talking about the murders back in 1978, and she didn't say anything. Lee Colgan even admitted to fixing his testimony to favor James Hutton, who ended up being acquitted. An anonymous local woman also admitted that she had been spooked by a motorcycle gang attempting to intimidate her after she testified that she had heard Dwayne Johnston boasting at a party to friends about the murder. Those friends he had boasted to also never said anything. 
There was also significant evidence that one of Helen's new friends, that had helped the Paz feel more and more like Helen's home away from home, Annalise Dumas and Helen's own boyfriend Cornelius Bitey, had been roughed up by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Instead of treating the two indigenous friends of Helen's with the same respect that they had shown the white folks they were talking to, instead, these two had been treated roughly and with hostility. As a Canadian, we learn about the Underground Railway. It's a point of pride. We all sit down in class and are told about the escape of African-American slaves escaping through an intricate network of allies for them to finally jump the border into Canada where they'd be granted asylum. Being fed this egalitarian dream, this idea that every man, woman, and child, even those who aren't naturally born Canadians, can be free and live without fear, has always instilled in me a great sense of pride in the Canadian identity. If I have ever felt an ounce of patriotism, it was at that concept. But as I've grown older, as I've seen the cracks and flaws in the force-fed stream of information, I've seen that these are facts, but there is also a lie and a mission. By not telling the full truth, we are led to believe the system isn't inherently and heartbreakingly broken. At the time of Helen Osborne's murder, movie theaters, schools, and bars in the Paz were in a Jim Crow fashion completely segregated. Something that we as Canadians are led to believe was let go in Canada a long, long time before the States, but there it was alive in the late 70s. After the trial, the Aboriginal Justice Implementation Commission conducted an investigation into the reasoning behind the length of time involved in resolving the case, and the handling of the case throughout the duration of the two main investigation periods, as well as the interim years between the two. The commission concluded that the most significant factors that had dragged the case along for so many long and unnecessary years were racism, sexism, and the indifference of the largely white community towards Helen Osborne and her murder. The case wasn't officially closed until February 12, 1999. Now, Creeps, this has to be one of the most difficult cases I've ever researched. Not because it's too graphic. Not because it's too gross. But instead because there just wasn't much information online. At any given point, for any one of these cases that involves white victims, I am able to go into Google and I am able to put in their name. The names of their children, the names of their husband, the names of their school they went to, or the little town, and I'm likely to get an overwhelming amount of information. But for this case, this case I wasn't able to find much. There just aren't many people talking about it. And that's one of the biggest problems. If we aren't telling this story, if we aren't educating each other, then we continue to not know what we don't know. I didn't know that I didn't know these things, but I hope by telling it, by sharing this tale with you, we can get one step closer to eradicating these racial injustices. It's not fair. Everyone deserves justice. Everyone deserves closure. And everyone deserves safety. And everyone deserves to be included in the safety net of society. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, 
please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door. (laughs) 